0: Hello and welcome to JLL's Life Sciences Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Walters. I'm the Investor Developer Lead for the UK Life Sciences Group at JLL. In this podcast, you'll be hearing from the great and the good that involve the life sciences sector. So we'll be talking to investors, developers, funders, occupiers, technical experts and operators in this space to hear their thoughts, views and opinions on how we can really take the life sciences sector to the next level in this market. I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Matt Jones from Hawley. Welcome, Matt. Thanks a lot, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm good. 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 First
1: time on a podcast. so
0: Good. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Um, today, for the purpose of our listeners, really, we're going to be talking to Matt about his world um, and what he does at Hawley, and in particular, thinking about it from a slant of what he's seeing from an Occupy perspective, how that's influencing design, engineering, and, and testing actually some of those Um, I've got some urban myths, I suppose, that I'd like to test with you that we're seeing in the life sciences market. Um, So to kick off, Matt, if you you wouldn't mind, could you give us a brief overview of who Hawley are, uh, what they do and what your role is within that business?
1: Okay, I'm a partner with Hawley. We are mechanical and electrical consultants. We've been around for about 150 years. So we've been through a few inflection points in terms Mm. of sort of industrial strategy. Historically we've done engineering buildings, in the last period we've sort of recognised that actually maybe our role is something bigger than that and, uh, and that's certainly very specific and pertinent to life sciences and science generally.
0: And in terms of your, your role, you said you're a partner within the business. How, how much are you at the, at the front line advising clients about delivering this type of space?
1: Yeah, so my career probably in the last 20 years has been dominated by science. I've done a number of schemes with Oxford University, Cambridge University, and a number of the universities in London. So I've led some, you know, five or six really significant research projects. That's given me personally and us as a firm the benefit of seeing a, a wide range of research yeah. And historically that was um, sort of research driven. In the last period, we've certainly seen a lot more spin out of, of that research. So the the sort of capitalization of, of that research, yeah. which has certainly really opened up some interesting observations for us. Um, about, three, about three months ago, we commissioned some research into what was happening within the market. Um, sort of recognised that there was this innovation culture emerging, and there were some constraints to that. We'd hoped that that research would provide the answer. Yeah. It's just provided quite a lot more questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it really has opened up our eyes to what the, the sector needs in terms of leadership, and and I think we've we've got a, a rich history of knowledge, and it's something I think we can really help on, and as you say, debunk. A few of these myths,
0: and this is um, just to complete the plug. Available in all good bookstores, or on your website. Yeah,
1: no, we're we're on the website, so just follow that if you, if and, you want to find us.
0: And in terms of the, you know, all of those questions, um, what are you what are you seeing as as the biggest question, or some of the biggest questions that that your clients are asking you to try and solve at the moment?
1: So I think about three years ago, we we recognised a definite change in the market. It's taken us a while, as I say, to work out what's happening but you see this in the industrial strategy where science, technology and research are clearly a big future for us as a country. In the market we're seeing huge demand from firms and organisations to both sort of seed their research and take it to the next level. As a response to that from the built environment we see quite a lot of constraint. Um, probably the biggest complaint from tenants is that the space that they need to facilitate their growth yeah. just isn't available. I um, say so that's all where we're, we come in because as, as somebody that's been providing these spaces for 20 odd years that's really curious to us that mm. there's this huge demand there's a market which is seemingly reluctant to provide it and we think we sort of understand some of those things uh, some of those issues and and that problem is really not as big as people would think it to be, I believe.
0: And how um, how big do you think that gulf is in terms of what an occupier is telling you that they need and what the investor developer market thinks they need?
1: Well, certainly the tenant market can't understand why they can't simply go out and take a space off the shelf. Yeah. Now... You know for me science breaks down to a number of areas it's not just life sciences there's you know there's deep tech there's ai and i think those spaces are all slightly different which makes it a slight departure from a more commercially minded sort of real estate mindset so there are a number of of different areas some of those are more challenging to deliver than others the traditional wet lab is thought of as probably one of the more challenging from my perspective, it's not that challenging. It's mm. just not an office. Um, so I think once you can get get your head around that, um, it would seem to me that the opportunity for development is is, is huge. There's certainly an increasing market there. I think spin outs from Oxford are doubling every year. Mm. talking about a number of unicorn firms in the next five to seven years. So that is going to need some infrastructure, which currently doesn't exist
0: and and you're completely right and we're, we're seeing that as well in the in the work that we're doing the demand is is there it's continuing to grow and it's the same old issue which is around supply um and you know i mentioned in the introduction about debunking some of these these myths that i think are in are in the market and we're touching on one of them now which is a perception i i believe um be interested to hear your view about The investor developer market looking at life sciences as an asset class and thinking well it's expensive to build it's full of tenants that are on really short-term leases there's no there's no covenant strength there's no investment value um, and it sort of becomes in the too difficult box really do you feel that that is 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 fair do you think that's actually true and and how do you think we can we can shift that perception. I think
1: as an asset class, it's early. It's early days. And I think the market's probably been dominated historically by developments that have been driven from research. Uh, So being one of the people that's probably responsible for the perception of expensive buildings, I think (laughs) that comes from a place where researchers have given us a brief to which we've responded. Mm. Um, I think what we're seeing now is is a change from research as i say to sort of commercialize that knowledge for which you know we've got some of the best best institutions in the world the commercialization of that takes on a a, a different model in, in my experience yes traditional research buildings are expensive but that's mm-hmm. because they've responded to a very bespoke definite brief i think there is a real opportunity to sort of you know, homogenise that brief a little bit. And when a firm is in its innovation period, it's, you know, it's, its funding is dependent on it reaching certain stages, its requirement for space to facilitate that, I think, changes the model a little bit. So, so you can build appropriate spaces much cheaper than the traditionally thought yeah. of cost plans, I think.
0: And this is, I suppose part of that is when you go to that user of space and say how much space and what type of space will you want you'll get full bells and whistles golden taps type answer whereas actually I think what you're saying is it's it's a lot more functional than that and there, it isn't necessarily need to be the full blown solution it's, it's yeah. the demand for space is there we actually just need to provide it and make sure that it's, it works
1: Absolutely and, and, and even when you you know from, from a researcher within a the university environment they're generally not paying for that mm. that facility I think there's a there's a change in once that, that science has spun out, then they, they are paying for it. So yeah. You know,
0: that changes the That dynamics, changes the
1: dynamics it? slightly. <laughs> um, and as I say, they're up against time. They need the demand for space is becoming one of the bigger constraints within that innovation ecosystem, which is an opportunity that I think that the you know the real estate sector can absolutely respond to. And I think when you see where science and research sits within our future as a country and some of the challenges that we are up against. Certainly the government's industrial strategy, which is sort of a, quite an, yeah. a, an optimistic post-Brexit document, uh, really speaks to what, what what we need to deliver as a country. Um, that, that really interests us. I think when you see that in context, um, yeah, there is a huge opportunity there.
0: And did, just staying on this theme around the actual physical space, how have you seen that demand um, for physical space change over time and sort of the mix of uses and types of uses? So whereas I think in the past it's been built to suit um, accommodation, high wet lab provision, for example, alongside dry lab, write up space, etc., How have you seen that split change <coughs> over time?
1: So sp- probably five years ago, if we were taking a brief, the view would have probably been, certainly within the Golden Triangle areas, you know, let's, let's make this office E with a potential lab upgrade, whatever mm. that, that meant, and there was probably not a massive amount of thought given into, into how you might upgrade that to a lab. Probably more importantly, there potentially wasn't the financial commitment to make that flexibility yep. uh, within the building. So I think in that five year period, I've seen that go about 180 degrees. Now, nobody really wants to talk about offices. <laughs> it's all yeah. about, how do we make this a lab? And within that definition of a lab, there is no real clarity around that. So yeah. how do we make that space suitable for research, suitable for science? It has to be adaptable, it has to be you know, changeable very quickly. Uh, to suit the sort of innovation model that's coming out, so I would definitely see very much more focus on what the tenant needs to deliver their business. So that there's a definite move mm. into that space. So that that and that and that is very much against, you know, a traditional commercial model now.
0: And just in in terms of types of space and the, you know, exemplar projects. Um, that you've either worked with personally um, or you've seen in the UK or internationally where they've got that. They have sort of understood the issues at play that we're discussing and have got the mix right and provided a functional space. Are there any that you would sort of outline to our listeners that they can do their homework on and have, have a little look?
1: I mean, there, there are a few. I think because it is a broad class, because the research element does you know, span a number of subclasses for want of a better word. I don't think there's one specific place that does everything mm. for everybody. Um, certainly, I think a portfolio of research buildings looks slightly more varied. You know, you provide a different building to yeah. do a different function. And if you can take that long term view that actually maybe it's a cluster of buildings or um, a slightly more states focused approach, you can definitely deliver. Uh, a much broader set of facilities for a broader set of set of users um, but there are you know there are London and imperial have done some good work there's good work yeah. in Oxford and cambridge there are there are sort of pockets of very good work i don 't believe anybody has absolutely cracked the market mm. and again for me you know i 'm very interested in how we might do that and there are a lot of ideas around actually how we can make this work um, that needs to be tested with a you know a, a broader team because it will cost more than an office there's, you know this that's probably true i don't believe it has to cost a lot more than an office yeah. there's just a few paradigms that need to be broken um in the way that we think about it
0: and you, going back um to the beginning when you were talking about some of the research that you've been doing and i went to the recent event which is um at the end of last year i think the role that you're talking about playing which is bringing together different people um, to collaborate and actually take the next step in this industry is is what's needed so what type of people do you think that collaboration what does that collaboration look like what type of people do you think needs to be in the room to actually move the conversation forward
1: so I, th- I think it, it, it probably needs to be broad and it needs to be tall you know one of the issues I think it's very important that the real estate market listens to how funding comes in it listens to the tenants and it understands their story and the challenges that, that that they've got uh it needs to be you know architects engineers qss mm. agents it, it, I don't think the problem there's no ready packed solution there's no sort of golden bullet that that, yeah. that can be fired and there you go there's the there's the new model um it will provide a bit of collaboration and I think it, it as i said earlier it's about a bit of leadership and what we've Observed is that the engineering part tends to be quite difficult and less well understood. So one of the things that we're very keen to do is to step up and actually try and, as you said, debunk mm. some of those myths, work work with the sector uh, to try and develop a model or a couple of models that work and will work not only for us in the real estate industry, but more importantly, possibly work mm. for the tenants and how, how they see... Uh, their business developing,
0: and what do you see, what do you foresee as the role for the public sector, and particularly the government? So we talked about the industrial strategy. There's the Office for Life Sciences that's that's in play. There's also various organisations that arguably are are doing some of the yeah. stuff that you're talking about um, in terms of bringing together industry. What do you see as the as the as the role for the so the I think public it's a very
1: very familiar. You hear it a lot that the sort of government needs to take leadership here. Mm. Uh, so the industrial strategy came out, which is, I think it was the first post-Brexit document. My take on it is I've got a bit more support for government, um, that they've had one or two things on their plate since then, and things maybe didn't quite go <laughs> as smoothly as they planned. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a recent white paper out in November of last year, which sort of uh, speaks to all government departments about putting... Yeah science at the heart of what they do and about them all having a strategy so i think government is certainly part of it that's not been a brilliant track record but as i say they they i think they did rather get consumed by other issues mm. now that seems to have been put to bed again we've sort of noticed a bit of a pickup in in uh, in leadership and focus on it so um you know i'm very optimistic that with a with a bit more leadership in a few more areas we, we could really we could really make something of this sector
0: and we've talked about um, places like London, Cambridge, Oxford—the you know, three component parts of of the Golden Triangle. But do you see the opportunity in this sector to be much broader than that? You know, outside of Definitely. those market. Definitely,
1: I think um, Oxford and Cambridge get a lot of press because of because of who they are. Mm. I was talking to uh, an American colleague um, who was. Saying so, you know in the in the US you in the UK you look at what we've done in America you mm. know, with sort of admiration. He was playing it back saying, actually, we see what you've got in terms of Oxford and Cambridge and the proximity and the history as something that is quite terrifying for them. So I think there is there's massive opportunity there, but there's great stuff going up in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Manchester, mm-hmm. Leeds. I spent some time recently with. Um, somebody in research, who was articulating that they felt their view within the Golden Triangle was to develop certain bits of IP that can be taken on on a more national scale and then developed out and taken, you know, scaled up and taken all the way through to manufacturing. So mm. you read the LEP in economic documents from Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, mm. they all speak to life sciences, yeah. science and technology advanced yeah. manufacturing. So I think as a as a narrow research sector, okay, there are pockets but those pockets are are national. I think when you take a step back from that and see actually where does this go to the end point? It mm-hmm. becomes you know certainly for real estate it becomes really encouraging because there are facilities and buildings and clusters needed yeah. to go, you know, all, all the way up up to manufacture so uh, really encouraging really optimistic
0: and something that i um, wanted to ask you was personally you've obviously invested a lot of time and um and your career into into this sector why why have you done that and why has hawley as a business backed science um so much
1: I'd love to say it was, it was all strategy, and there was a bit of strategy in there, but we're 150-odd 100, years old so, uh, and still a partnership, so we, we do have the ability to, to move around uh, and focus on things. One of the things that we're very interested in is, it, is how we can contribute to social value. You know, Our strapline is engineers of human experience. So, so for us, it's about, yes, there's a commercial angle to it, but if we can do that within an environment where we're making a contribution to the, you know, to the country and improving people's lives, then there's there's sort of no downside to that for yeah. us. So from an engineering perspective, it's much, much, you know, it's very much more interesting. Uh, we'd like to think of ourselves as problem solvers and some of these issues present problems. So, yeah. so that's from a career perspective is much more, much more satisfying. Yeah, and enjoyable. Yeah.
0: So, Matt, we've seen so much change in the market over the past 12, 24, even 36 months. What are your predictions for 2020 and moving beyond that date?
1: The eternal optimist, I can only see things uh, <laughs> improving. I, I don't think there's any way back for us. Um, knowledge is, you know, we are as good as anybody globally at knowledge. Uh, we should have some confidence. I think we've made our bed now, or the is cast in terms of the direction yeah. we are going. and And this is our our best horse so for me i can only see it you know increasing and increasing and i don't think we've even really started you know we're using an old model to try and facilitate something different i think as soon as we we stretch that model into a a different shape i think things will really really take off so i'm really optimistic
0: I share the same thought, so we're in it together. Excellent. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Matt. That's been great. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks a lot.